0: And welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm the host of the show. Today is the fourth of my occasional summer series on the question of how to respond to mass atrocities. Earlier this summer, I talked with Scott Strauss, Bridget Conley Zilkic, and Jim Waller. Today, I have the great pleasure of welcoming Carrie Booth Walling to the show. Carrie is an associate professor of political science at Albion College in Michigan, where she was awarded the Students' Choice Teaching Award in 2014. She also writes a blog titled Voices of Change. Today though, we're talking about her recent book, All Necessary Measures, the UN and Humanitarian Intervention, published by the University of Pennsylvania Press. This book is a little different than the first three in our series. Strauss, Waller, and Conley Zilkic all had different emphases but each was very explicitly engaged in the project of synthesizing lessons about how to mitigate or prevent mass atrocities. Carrie's book isn't directly engaged in this conversation. Rather, she's most interested in looking at the recent past and understanding why the United Nations made decisions about humanitarian intervention. But while the book doesn't make explicit policy recommendations, it does have important lessons for anyone interested in how decisions about intervention are made. I'm really looking forward to talking about uh, the book with Carrie. Uh, It's a well-researched, well-written piece, Uh, and with that, Carrie, welcome to the show and thanks for joining us on New Books in Genocide Studies.
1: Thank you, Kelly. It's great to be here.
0: So we always start um, by maybe giving you a chance to uh, let the audience get to know you a little bit. So maybe you can say a little bit about how how you became an academic interested in this issue of humanitarian intervention and human rights.
1: Sure. I, you know, I, I think about this a lot because I I work with undergraduate students on a regular basis, and my my real interest in these questions and these issues happened when I was an undergraduate student. Um, when I was doing my undergraduate degree, the wars in the former Yugoslavia were going on, the genocide in Rwanda was going on, and, and this was the, the context around me. And I was really... It really, it really captured my attention. I was very distressed by the fact that there was systematic rape campaigns, that individuals were being murdered on the basis of their identity, and it just didn't seem like the world was doing much about it. Um, So I had this really deep sense of injustice, and it was in that context that I first really discovered the idea of human rights for me. And, And human rights became a framework that was a way to, an empowering way, I guess, to, to reject the, the injustices that I was seeing and to fight for and, and promote human dignity. So um, that, that's really how I got caught up in these kinds of questions that I explore in the book and continue to explore in my, my teaching and research. How I became a professor sometimes uh, confuses me a little bit. I'm not. I'm not. <laughs> I'm not sure exactly how I got from there to to where I am. Other than to say that, um, I'm I'm a, always interested in learning, uh, always asking questions. I spent a little time in the NGO field in practice, which I loved uh, and have a real passion for. But uh, always got distracted by the the how and the why questions, and so. Um, that's what i what's what I love to do
0: so we we're yeah we were talking about this a little bit uh, as we were chatting before the interview um and and so I was in graduate school about the same time you were an undergraduate i I think because I had the same response to Rwanda and Bosnia, and I had this and some of the listeners have have heard me say this before had this moment where I wondered whether I really should be teaching whether I shouldn't be off working for the u n h c r or something like that um And so how do you think, do you, do you see your teaching as an extension of that kind of commitment to human rights and, and and if so, how do you, how how do you maintain the kind of objectivity that, that a social scientist thinks is really important while still having that kind of commitment?
1: Oh, this is a wonderful and difficult question. (laughs) I think for for me, I I, I do, the way that I I see the work that I do in the classroom is to get students to understand that the subjects that we're studying, the issues that we're debating are about real people in real places, Mm -hmm. uh, that they're not just abstract debates, that these are real people's lives, and and so for me, I guess the way that I, I... Feel like I can safely be a social scientist, but also do a little mission driven work is to build students' sense of, of empathy uh, with others. And so, whenever they're confronting uh, deep questions about international politics, for example, that they're thinking about the variety of perspectives and being able to critically analyze those different points of view, which in part means having empathy. For others, and recognizing that real human beings' lives are involved in these in these questions.
0: So, why political science, as opposed to any of the number of other disciplines that, that address this kind of thing?
1: Well, I think political science has an important uh, makes an important contribution in the sense that. I try to explain to students, it's not always just about figuring out the right answer uh, to these problems. It's understanding why sometimes that's not enough. Sometimes it's not enough to actually know how to prevent genocide or how to respond to mass atrocity crimes because that has to be done in in the context of a real political world. And so it's important to understand why and how decisions get implemented or don't get implemented uh, despite sometimes our best evidence, and so I think political science makes a real contribution in understanding the the how uh, and the why and the why not so so maybe you could say a little bit about so so
0: your book deals with a number of case studies um, where the u n was faced with um, in international crisis and decided or did not decide to, to intervene. Um, why did you decide to to spend years and years of your life on that particular topic?
1: Yeah I think part of it was that I was I was wrestling still with those those questions that I think so many of us wrestle with beginning when I was an undergrad and continue why why do these why do human beings do really bad things to each other? Why do other human beings Seemingly permit that to happen while others try to intervene to stop it. So I was really interested in these these perennial kinds of kinds of questions. Um, but it, it, so in, on the surface, the book is a little bit about well, why do states decide to intervene? to rescue human beings or rescue strangers in some cases or not others. But actually, for me, the book is really about a deeper puzzle than that, which is why do we even come to expect states to do that? Um, Isn't it remarkable that states are willing at all to rescue strangers? And, And how does this happen? How does it come about? So for me... I think looking at the UN Security Council in particular is a really interesting place to study the impact of human rights ideas, human rights norms, and changing in the increasing legitimacy of those ideas in our world. because the, the Security Council, we traditionally think about this as a realm of great power politics where you know the coin of the realm is material power and national interests and it's very politicized. And yet, and all of that is true, and yet, if you look, you can see that there's this intermingling of human rights norms and values of of justice that get intermixed with material power and national interest. And so it's a particularly hard case. So I also like that. I like the the challenge of, of trying to say, let's pick one of the the places we least expect to find the influence of human rights where we can be the most cynical based on the track record and see and yet still find that human rights ideas have a have a purchase in that venue, largely because it's an idea that has captured the minds of so many individuals around the world who those leaders are accountable to in one way or another.
0: So so as you engage these issues and look at these case studies, one of the things that comes up, up again and again and again in terms of frameworks through, way, through which people view the world as this idea of sovereignty, and you talk about Westphalian sovereignty, um, and then talk about Alternative ways that sovereignty might be imagined. So, so, especially for people who don't have a social science background, can you say a little bit about what you mean by Westphalian sovereignty and and what kind of alternatives there might be?
1: Sure. So, the United Nations and the United Nations Security Council were were founded on core principles, including this idea of state sovereignty. And I use state sovereignty and Westphalian sovereignty it together. Um, that, that states have the right to control its people and its borders, and that its governing authorities have the right to make decisions within that territory and for their people without outside interference. So that's the, the first way that sovereignty, uh, one of the ways sovereignty appears in the UN Charter. The other is this idea that I call international legal sovereignty or the sovereign equality of states, which is the idea that no matter, even though it's an unequal world, that states have different levels of power and material resources, natural resources, and different amounts of money, troops, things like that, that at the UN, they are still sovereignly equal, that they are each entitled to this same right or respect of their Mm -hmm. sovereignty. Um, so that's the, the traditional way that sovereignty has been understood in political science and in the United Nations. But one of the remarkable things that I think has been happening in the United Nations for over the last several decades is that the meaning of sovereignty is changing and evolving over time. And so you see references to sovereignty where the underlying meaning is a little bit different than those two descriptions that I gave you that were originally in the charter. One is that increasingly, there's been an appeal to popular sovereignty, uh, which is familiar to those of us living in democratic countries, but that this is the idea that the sovereign authority is actually invested in the people rather than the government, and that the government's job is uh, that the government's only legitimate when they are representing the needs and interests of those people. And there's a real question in debate, whether or not the the UN has been moving closer and closer to this idea of a, a right to democracy, which can take us in a, a totally different direction mm-hmm. here. But, uh, but the most important change, and the one that maybe members of the audience may have heard of before, is this idea of sovereignty as responsibility, known more familiarly as the responsibility to protect. And this basically is the idea that sovereignty, properly understood, isn't just a right that states have, that sovereignty actually comes with responsibilities, and that the core responsibility of any state is to protect its population, and in particular, states must protect their populations from mass atrocity crimes. and that if they're either unable or unwilling to do so, either because they're the perpetrator or because they're incapable, because they're weak in some way, that the international community has a responsibility to protect, acting through the UN Security Council in in particular. So, what we've been seeing, those of us who study the U.N. Security Council, sees that increasingly over time there are more and more frequent references to the idea of sovereignty as responsibility. There's been a really big debate post Libya, and certainly in the face of, of failure, perceived U.N. failure in in Syria, which I think is a you know well-founded critique, that this mm-hmm. idea of sovereignty as responsibility or the responsibility to protect is dead. Um, but i would I would challenge that because what i what I think we see is we see a, a huge failure in the big case that everyone's paying attention to. Mm-hmm. but there have been more than thirty references to responsibility to protect and security council resolutions. There have been more than a dozen presidential statements that reference the idea, and most of those, in fact, maybe about ninety percent of those have happened since two thousand eleven when Hmm. Libya happened. So we're seeing an actual dramatic increase in reference and they're used in a number of other cases that don't uh, get the big attention in part because the UN Security Council maybe has been a little bit more successful in those other cases. Mm -hmm.
0: So one of the things about Syria, and we'll maybe come back and talk more explicitly about this later, is the, the, the disparate kind of stories people tell about why the fighting in Syria is happening and what can be done about it. So, so that's actually at the core of your book. So let's go back and you, you suggest in your book that the kinds of stories people tell about conflicts matter, and matter a lot. And you lay out three different types of stories. So, so maybe you could just briefly outline those three different types of stories and, and, and why they matter.
1: Sure, and I have to give credit to Deborah Stone, who is a, a, a public policy scholar who's written the book, uh, Policy Paradox, and I borrow from from her framework and, and apply it in this new context. Um, so, I use a portion of her framework. So, there's three main stories that I talk about, and, um, and I think storytelling is really key not only to public policy, but it, it's a big part of what we see happening in the Security Council all the time. So generally, when I look at Security Council debates, there are patterns of storytelling. The first pattern, which is um, probably the the least frequent to some degree, (laughs) is but the most important for, for generating a Security Council response to a conflict, is a story about the conflict that is called an intentional story. This is a story about perpetrators and victims, about good guys. And bad guys so so an intentional story has three kind of key elements um, you have to be able to identify the perpetrator and hopefully you can name who those perpetrators are if not by actual person by side or party or that there's a the government authorities Um, The second is you got to characterize the violence in a way that shows it has this deliberate character. So genocide, by definition, um, is an intentional story, right? It's a story about a perpetrator knowingly and deliberately doing harm to a set of, of victims. And so the last element of that intentional story is to be able to identify the victim group. So when you tell an intentional story, a story about perpetrators and victims, good guys and bad guys, it's easy to generate a response because all you have to do is stop the perpetrator from doing the bad things that the perpetrator is doing. And so usually these kinds of stories are um, grounded in ideas of international law and justice and The appropriate action is some kind of punishment or accountability. Okay, so that's the first story we see is this good guy, bad guy story. The second is what I call an inadvertent story, and this is a story about moral equivalency. This is a story where there's multiple parties to the conflict, and there's diffuse responsibility. So yes, there are victims. We might even be able to identify those victims. But either they are collateral damage, an awful political science term, right? This idea that they <laughs> that they have been killed or, or victims of the conflict, but aren't necessarily deliberately the point of the war. Um, their deaths aren't the point. Their, their, their deaths are a byproduct. Um, or else that there's multiple parties that are committing egregious acts. And so they're, you know, they're, they're essentially morally equivalent with each other. And so, in that kind of situation, the job of outsiders is to be neutral and impartial. There's no clear good guys. Um, there might be bad guys, but there's so many. Um, and instead, the, the focus is on pr- providing humanitarian assistance and relief, condemning all parties for their bad behavior, and monitoring that bad behavior so you can point out which side is doing what. Um, and this whole idea of neutral, neutrality and impartiality goes back to that, those core UN um, foundational principles that I talked about, the sovereign equality of states, and related to that, the non-intervention in the internal affairs of other states. So we got the intentional story. We got the inadvertent story. And then the third is the most common story, actually, and is the story of complexity. It's a complex story. It is a story about tragedy. Um, tragedy is thrown around a lot as a phrase. Uh, also, this is a complex and confusing conflict. This is something that you'll hear security council members say again and again and again. And complexity can come in a variety of ways. Um, it can be that there are multiple sources of causation. So there's no single point of leverage. To fix the problem, uh, because maybe you've got some perpetrators and, and some bad guys out there, but maybe you also have some structural factors that are the cause of the conflict. Um, you can have all kinds of different parties. You can have it can the conflict could be both a civil war and a interstate war that's between states across borders. It can have outsiders involved in it. So there's all this kind of layering of complexity. And complex stories are the least likely to result in any meaningful action by the U.N. Security Council, because essentially they just say, well, I don't know what to do. No, no one can do anything about it, right? This is just, it's, it's, it's inevitable. And so it leads to this kind of status quo, um, a status quo bias. You just get status quo kinds of policies. And the justification for that is that, hey, our job is to protect international order, what's going on inside that country is not our business it's, it's an internal matter of their state and so we just kind of need to to protect the boundaries um, so so basically those are the three narratives or stories that security council members tell whenever they're looking at conflicts that make it onto their agenda so either they're really clear that there's clear good guys and bad guys and all we got to do is stop the bad guys and that's where we most likely see some kind of forceful action, whether it's military or non-military. Then there's this inadvertent, this idea of of moral equivalency, that there's all parties to the conflict are engaged in um, rights-violating behavior and need to stop and be punished, or um, the complex story, which says this is a tragedy. And tragedy is really hard to do anything about.
0: Mm. So and I should say, nonverbals are always important. And uh, uh, we're doing this interview on, on Skype. And and as she said, that the people in this complex stories, the universe, people at the Security Council kind of throw up their hands. And she actually physically raised her hands up in the air to to illustrate this. And and you get a sense of I don't know if it's despair, but. Um, uh, but the recognition of, at least in this story, of your inability to make a difference, and therefore the the reason that you shouldn't try. Um, why, so you start with Iraq, uh, but not in 03. You start with Iraq in 1990 and 1991 and two, which which my, to my students is ancient history. Um,
1: why start there? Yeah, Iraq is a really interesting story. So it's um, it the reason I start there. It's not a case of, of humanitarian intervention in any pure sense, um, but why Iraq is important is that it's it's this Iraq war in 1991, um, a very traditional interstate conflict, that it's through this conflict and, and uh, Security Council conversations about conflict that human rights ideas start to become a legitimate subject matter for Security Council discussion. Um, and previous to that, it was very, very rare, very infrequent, and frankly, inappropriate for Security Council members to talk about human rights within the venue of the Security Council. And so this is why Iraq's important. Okay, so so how does this actually happen? Um, so so. So back in uh, Iraq, 1990, 1991, you have Iraq annexing, invading Kuwait and annexing the territory. You have the Security Council responding at the request of Kuwait and its allies. Um, Kuwait wants to engage in self-defense. Kuwait's unable to engage in self-defense and so seeks support from the U.S., from uh, the United Nations Security Council. And so it starts out as a very traditional, straightforward uh, case for the U.N. Security Council because it has violated one of the cardinal rules of the U.N. Charter is that member states are to refrain from aggression. They're to refrain from the threat or use of force against other member states. And uh, the Security Council demands that Iraq leave Kuwait, reverse the, the occupation and annexation, and, and warns uh, Saddam Hussein that if, if he fails to do so, then military action will be forthcoming. So then we get the, the Gulf War. Um, and what happens is that it is reversed. Um, Iraq goes back to Iraq. Kuwait reestablishes its borders and has its its security. So um, pretty straightforward case gets the Security Council and much of the international community excited because, wow, the Security Council can actually work and it can actually do the things it was set out to do. Um, but then there's, there's, a, there's a problem, and that's this that when the, that there are a number of repressed groups inside of Iraq and they, they see this and, and use this as an opportunity to rise up and attempt to overthrow. Saddam Hussein. And so you have Kurds in the north in Iraqi Shia in the marsh areas um, seeking to overthrow Saddam Hussein. They, they fail to do so. And the response from the Iraqi government is so brutal and so disproportionate um, that it causes this massive humanitarian crisis as civilians urgently try to flee the borders. And, and so you end up with this situation where you have, um, massive numbers of Kurds in the north trapped in the mountains on the, the border with Turkey. You've got, um, you've got Shia caught, trapped in marshes who are being massacred, and those who can get out are, are fleeing into Iran. And so you get this emergency meeting of the UN Security Council to talk about this situation. But what's so interesting about it is that it's the primary, primary concern is not per se with the human rights violations. It's with the effects of the human rights violations on neighbor countries. And so it is about Turkish and Iranian sovereignty. And so in discussing that, the argument is made that human rights should be allowed to be discussed in the council. Because, again, it's not about the human rights per se, which belongs in ECOSAC. It belongs in other parts of the UN are supposed to deal with human rights. But it's because of the cross-border effects of Saddam Hussein's human rights violations. The decision to allow... Briefings that include human rights references to human rights is actually controversial and there's a debate That's had within the Security Council about whether to permit it or not Um, And in in the end uh, Those who supported it won Um, Those who were opposed said it was inappropriate and it it should be prohibited Um, and so a, a compromise is struck there is very limited room for anyone to mention human rights, but once they enter the Security Council discourse, they never leave. Um, and and so, so Iraq becomes really important because it's the first time that human rights becomes a subject of deliberation. But again, the only reason that it happened was largely for instrumental reasons. That it was about the cross border effects, the consequences of human rights violations, not human rights violations themselves, but it laid the groundwork for future humanitarian crises to be defined as threats to international peace and security. And it doesn't take long. Uh, and then all of a sudden we see subsequent qu- cases happening quite quickly and quite frequently since.
0: Yeah, so let's. In fact, you identify, your next two chapters actually identify a couple cases where that's clear. And you, you talk about Somalia and Bosnia. And as I read these chapters, the key reason why intervention is, is at least possible to discuss in these cases is exactly that member states in the UN find a way to redefine the existence of sovereignty. In those places, in a way that will allow them to intervene. Is is, is that the right reading of of what you say?
1: Yes, yes. That's a, thank you. That's a great reading of it. So, so I talk about these these stories at the beginning. Um, yeah. These different narratives that describe the conflict, um, what's happening in the conflict, and who's responsible. So a narrative or a story that really can clearly define the conflict uh, as intentional with a perpetrator, that that creates an opportunity for, for a possible military response, a humanitarian intervention. But the greatest barrier to the use of military force for the UN Security Council goes back to sovereignty. And so, we only actually see the Security Council using military force when they can make an argument that the promotion and protection of human rights is actually consistent with sovereignty as opposed to opposed to sovereignty. Because when sovereignty and human rights come into conflict, because the Security Council's job is to protect international peace and security and maintain sovereignty, sovereignty wins. And so it's only in these circumstances where Security Council members can construct a second story that explains how and why the protection and promotion of human rights or military action in this case does not violate state sovereignty that humanitarian intervention becomes possible. And and that's possible in Somalia because essentially the Security Council becomes convinced that Somalia is a failed state and that there are no legitimate governing authorities that are are there, um, in which case it's not a violation of that state sovereignty. The sovereignty is suspended, and so they are free to act and use military force as a way to promote um, humanitarian aid and and to promote human rights protection. And in Bosnia, it takes them a really long time. and, And I guess when I talked about stories before, I didn't really talk about this, is that often Multiple stories are present in the Security Council at the same time. It's not that everybody just automatically coalesces around a single story or narrative about what's happening. Different parties, different states are advancing different stories and you have contestation in that in order for the Security Council to act, they have to come to a moment of unity. They have to coalesce around a particular story and either get uh, a majority of the members to to agree or or at least some to decide to drop out. And so Bosnia, you have this contestation for a really, really long time. But when you finally get a military response, it's because there's been um, agreement that what's happening there is intentional. It fits this intentional story but also that the Bosnian government itself is a victim of human rights violations. And and so in that kind of case, when the target is the victim, you can protect their sovereignty and protect human rights simultaneously. And so that makes it really easy to justify the use of military force in that circumstance. But as I said, it took a while. It took several years for them to get to that point where they were willing to do so.
0: Yeah, so I was going to ask about that. Um, what is it, I mean, clearly, I don't know, facts on the ground matter. Um, but you argue that, or at least sometimes explicitly, sometimes implicitly in your book, you talk about the ways in which actors manage to make a particular story more or less believable. So, so how does it happen that a story, that people change their minds about a story?
1: Yeah. So about what
0: story is appropriate?
1: Yeah. So why does one story win out over others? I mean, so sometimes yeah. it does happen through persuasion, uh, but sometimes it also just becomes a point where a particular story becomes untenable in the face of facts on the ground, as you say. Uh, so, so Bosnia provides a, a good example of this. So so the two things that seem to matter the most about why one story wins out over others is that the proponents of the story matter. Their material and normative power matter quite a bit. Um, it, it makes sense just at a purely practical level that you've got to have a majority of permanent members of the Security Council uh, adopting a particular story for it to win, but um, you can have the most powerful state and that alo- alone is not enough. So it, it's not the only, the only piece. Um, the second is its consistency with uh, forensic evidence with media imagery and with expert testimony, independent experts. And while all of those things can sometimes be used as evidence for multiple stories, there become moments where alternative stories no longer make sense. And so for, for Bosnia, the, the real holdout here was that, um, you had Russia Continuing to promote this inadvertent story of all story, all parties to the conflict are responsible, um, in in that this is a, a internal matter of the the state of the former Yugoslavia, and so the UN Security Council shouldn't be involved. And so, actually, in Bosnia for a really long time, uh, you get a majority of Security Council members, including uh, the permanent three U.S., France, and the U.K., all agreeing. That the Serbs are responsible. That this is an intentional, deliberate conflict. That it's ethnic cleansing. Um, But Russia's this holdout. And so what happens is the Srebrenica massacre, and not only the the massacre uh, in Srebrenica. This is uh, uh, Srebrenica is a is a um, a town, an important uh, community in Bosnia. It was protected by UN peacekeepers. It was what they were calling at that time a, a safe haven where civilians could go to be protected by the United Nations. Um, that turned out to be very unsafe areas because the civilian population were together in large numbers and the Bosnian Serb army overran that safe haven and in the process they they murdered upwards of 7,000 Muslim boys and men. Um, The U.S. had satellite imagery within a a short period of time of the massacre occurring. There was reports coming back from survivors. There were human rights uh, investigators who were sharing the information. The U.S. uh, checked out the satellite imagery and showed evidence of mass graves. And during the Security Council meeting, you have Madeleine Albright passing around declassified satellite photos showing the mass graves. And up until this point, you have Russia who had been protecting uh, Serbia. At this point, it became very difficult, untenable for them to to justify. And so they essentially step back and opt out of the debate, and they just allow the rest of the Security Council to make decisions. Um, So at that point, the narrative shifts to this intentional story, but we still don't get military action. But military action happened shortly after when there's another massacre in the, the marketplace of Sarajevo where a large number of civilians are killed. Um, but not only that, there have been massacres every day throughout the war. It's just that at this point, the Security Council was primed to act. And then on the other hand, the media was there. Sarajevo was a, a media-friendly uh, area of the war zone where there was a, a hotel available where media could stay. Um, they were present in large numbers and they were there with cameras rolling when this massacre happened, where, uh, and, and it was captured on television. And that became, uh, it created such a level of injustice that it was, it was possible for the Security Council then to take military action. And they didn't do much, it was just a couple small number of airstrikes and, and the conflict went to the, the peace table.
0: Yeah, I'm really struck because it seems like such a simple statement that, that photographs and evidence of the, the, the um, atrocities attributed to have become public, and it became untenable for to, Russia to continue to support a different kind of story. And yet, that that's the fact that that's un, untenable is not inevitable. It's it's it marks a certain kind of evolution in our understanding of what states are allowed to do.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's and it's not automatic because, you know, there's moments like where we see this footage coming out of Syria and what's happening to children there and you think this is going to move, move things, it's going to do yeah. things and it and it doesn't. So it it's a it's a variety of factors that come together. But but what is interesting is what you said at at some point in the past we just all you know people felt a great sense of, of sympathy and felt bad about it but they didn't actually demand or expect that their governments were going to do something about it yeah. and so i argue in the book that by the time we get to today it's actually much harder to defend. Dis- that, that, states are on the, on the defensive. It's harder for Security Council members to defend and justify non-intervention, for example, in Syria, than it can be to suggest that intervention might be the right thing to do. Now, intervention rarely happens. It's a, you know, this book focuses on these cases. There are a small number of cases. It's still a selective and rare event. Um, but the fact is that it is, Security council members used to just not intervene, and they didn't have to really justify that. And now they have to justify that they're not doing something.
0: And in fact, the next three chapters of your book are all cases where they where they do indeed justify to themselves and to others more or less inaction with Rwanda and Kosovo and Darfur. Um, so what, or maybe they don't have anything in common, but maybe they do. What is it about those cases that allow the UN to, or members of the UN to express their sympathy for the victims to talk about these as a as a tragedy and yet decide that intervention is not appropriate
1: yeah they're all they're all very different and and i and i should stress you know even though i'm i'm making patterns uh, Mm -hmm. identifying patterns throughout the book that what i try to do in each chapter is give very careful attention to the nuances of each case because each case has its own dynamics and one thing about the UN Security Council is that they eschew rules and patterns and they insist that they must make decisions on a case by case ad hoc basis. I think what the book shows is is that they say that, but they are yeah. very much influenced across case and by mm-hmm. previous previous decision. So, so I'm going to say something about patterns, but I don't want to um, mm-hmm. give the impression that there's a lot of similarity between these cases. I think the the one thing that is similar that's important about uh, Rwanda, Kosovo, and Darfur is that in all three cases, it is the state that is the primary perpetrator of mass atrocity crimes. and. This really shows the importance of the stories about sovereignty and understandings yeah. about sovereignty because when the state is a perpetrator, it brings into conflict this traditional notion of state sovereignty, which is at the heart and core of the UN Charter, and the promotion and protection of, of human rights, which is also in the UN Charter, but um, it. It had a little bit of a lower status until until more more recently, and it's certainly grown in importance at the UN. Um, And so when those two things come into conflict with each other, we can expect either the stronger, more internalized norm to win, sovereignty in this case, um, or we can expect a lot of inconsistency and confusion among the states themselves about what they're supposed to do, because there's a good argument in both directions. Um, and so you either get so much contestation that it results in inaction. There's no decision is actually ever made, as in Kosovo, it just um, persists. Or else they they make the wrong decision, or they make the, or I shouldn't say the wrong, they make the decision to not intervene, right? To yeah. Do nothing. Um, in that case, wrong in the sense of that their populations, the international community, other states are expecting them to act, and the Security Council members are criticized. For non-intervention. So when we look at the history of UN failures, usually Rwanda is at the top of the list. Syria is up there now as well. Mm -hmm. Um, Darfur is also in there. So the fact that they're looked at as failures suggests that there's an expectation that the Security Council should have done something, whether it was humanitarian intervention, whether it was making sure a peace deal really happened, whether it was greater humanitarian assistance, that they didn't do their job. So it's a little bit of a perverse finding, right? Um, which is basically that says, okay, well, it's really easy to use military force against a non state actor, yeah. right? Or against a, a state that has failed to, to meet its responsibilities as a state, but it's very difficult to do so when the state is, the perpetrator is a member of the United Nations. Um, and that's why Libya is so interesting because yeah. of a radical departure. Um, and so, the, so what happens in Libya is that the perpetrator is also a state, but yet the Security Council decides to take pretty forceful action. They um, they enforce a no-fly zone, which in effect leads to a humanitarian intervention, and they also refer the situation there to the International Criminal Court. So, so what what has changed? Um, partly is, is that rhetorically, they were security council members who, who wanted to intervene, made an argument that appealed to the responsibility to protect or to the sovereignty as responsibility. They said, hey, there's no sovereignty problem here because Gaddafi, has lost and all other Libyan authorities have lost the legitimate right to rule. They no longer speak for and represent their people, and that the voice of the Libyan people themselves were quite united um and asking for help and you had support from uh regional organizations that have a high level of legitimacy, like the the Arab League, for example, um calling for protection by the Security Council. And so they make this argument that says Gaddafi is no longer the legitimate sovereign authority of the state of Libya. And instead, sovereignty is invested in the Libyan people who are asking us to help. So therefore, we've got no sovereignty problem here because we are going to protect the sovereignty of Libya and protect its people and its borders at the same time we protect and promote human rights. And it's the first time they make this this kind of argument wins in the Security Council. Mm. And I think it's because it shows how much norm change has happened from the beginning of the 1990s until the point you get to 2011, that the meaning of sovereignty and the legitimacy of human rights has increased so much.
0: So, yeah, you, you talk about the kind of evolution in the way people viewed ideas about human rights and sovereignty. Um, and for a historian, and, and I know we've got a historian talking to a political scientist, um, I was really struck by what you said about Iraq um, and about the way in which the the decisions that are made about Iraq enable a kind of discourse in future crises um, that might not have occurred if these had happened in I'm in, 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 putting the Cold War aside in '85 or '87 or something like that. So, so how much how path dependent is everything on iraq is is iraq and the decisions that happened in iraq in a sense a logical emergence of a broader change in the way people think about human rights in the decades before that or or does that specific event really make a difference
1: yeah that's a that's a that's a good question i think you know in the, the trajectory of Security Council decision-making, it, it was important, and it does make a difference. But had it not happened, I still think we'd be having this conversation. Mm-hmm. So, And I think that's because um, what we see is a lot of rapid norm change, particularly in this area of human rights and related norms of, of justice and individual criminal accountability happening Um, the 1980s, the 90s, through the 2000s. And and so we see it in a lot of different places around the world, not just in the the UN Security Council. Mm -hmm. And we see a a change that has been taking place where it's no longer acceptable for a state to murder its own population and then claim that it's an internal domestic matter that Mm -hmm. doesn't have any... That deserves protection. Um, Yes, we know genocide continues, genocide proceeds, but within the realm of international politics, for a long time, there was a strong deference to head of state or sovereign immunity. And that has really been called into question, not just within the realm of the UN Security Council, but more broadly. And we we see a, a similar dynamic in terms of individual criminal accountability, and uh, the demand for justice um, that has also been increasing. Uh, Catherine Sikink doc, uh, documents this in, in her well-known book, the, the Justice Cascade. So so I do think that the normative change that's going on in the world at this time is extremely important. And so I think we would get there without a rock. Um, but Iraq was a particularly important and convenient case because political contingency does matter. I guess what I want to say is that um, political contingency matters, and Iraq just happens to be a a straightforward, easy case, very uncontroversial of one state invading another, and since it was in a context of something relatively uncontroversial that most states agreed upon, it became easy to... Bring human rights in without maybe fully appreciating the way in which the entrance of human rights ideas as legitimate subject of debate in the Security Council would change the dynamics of the Security Council. Now, that said, there were states who wanted that conversation to happen, who were advocating for that mm-hmm. conversation to happen, right? So, um, in the field of norm research, we talk about norm entrepreneurs. These are individuals who have particular values and beliefs and are working to advance them and see them advance. And so we certainly see actions of individuals matter. And I think one of the challenges for political scientists and certainly one of the challenges in the book is that I talk a lot about states and I talk a lot about um, decision making invested in these kind of units. but individuals matter, and I, and I try to give examples in the chapters of stories of how particular individuals or particular decisions matter along the way. Um, and, and that's certainly the case. So,
0: you, you, you've talked a lot about kind of the underlying emergence of a different kind of way of viewing of, of the world. And and again, as a historian, I'm stuck, I'm, am I just living in that? weird happy time where these norms change enormously or is this kind of significant shift in norms actually more typical than i think about
1: i've been i've been thinking a lot about this question and i have some tentative answers but mm-hmm. uncertain answers i mean one of the the things that i'm struck by is that there is a real debate in the field particularly among scholars working on the responsibility to protect Working on international um, individual criminal accountability and justice stuff, Mm -hmm. as well as uh, the Security Council and human rights. Is this question of is this has this been a fundamental shift, or is this a particular moment in time? Yeah. Right. Are we going to see a reversal and a reversion back? And so, so the future kind of tells us, but um, and, and we'll all see at that point, but at the same time, I, I just think that it, it's hard to imagine that we can completely go back to the way things were before. And, and And partly the reason I say that, it's not that norm change just happens in one direction. All of this norm change that I'm talking about with the increasing legitimacy of human rights and the changing meaning of sovereignty and increasing demands for in, um, individual criminal accountability for leaders who commit mass atrocity crimes, that there are counter norms that are happening at the same time, right? There there are, it, these things happen in a pre-existing space. And so that the same time that individuals and states are pushing these norms, there are other individuals and states who are pushing back and appealing to uh, traditional norms, pre-existing norms, or advancing counter-norms to it, and so there is this contest and evolution that's that's I think regularly ongoing. So I I don't think um, I don't think it's just a moment in time, but. I think the important thing to keep in mind is that it's not a linear trajectory, it's nothing that's predetermined, that what we are seeing is political contestation, and I'm telling a story, uh, drawing attention to a line of political contestation, and um, pointing out the winners who've won in a particular moment and sequence, Mm -hmm. but there's all kinds of contestation that's regularly happening. Um, and so you see a lot of pushback even in the Security Council. So even as I'm talking about this dynamic, you have a lot of states who have a little bit of a buyer's remorse. They're a little bit concerned. So you have a lot of pushback after Libya. Um, states and their leaders get a little bit of nervous with this yeah. idea that they might themselves be held criminally accountable or politically accountable or militarily accountable for decisions they make with regard to their own populations. And once they start to see that as a real possibility, um, they sometimes get nervous and and wish to return to the world before when they had a lot more security in their own hands. Um, Hmm. So I think we're in that kind of moment right now.
0: So there's a third story, kind of story, that you you hint at and occasionally you raise um, So it was really striking to me, and and, and I guess in some ways comes from my experience, my my primary interest or my entry point into this field was Rwanda. Mm -hmm. Um, And one of the stories that in my mind is told about Rwanda is, relates to the, the ability of the UN to make a difference, right, that regardless of whether this is a set of massacres by a government which has intentionally decided to destroy its people. If you can't actually deploy UN troops effectively and have them make a difference, why do you even talk about intervention at all? Uh, and this, of course, comes out of Somalia. Um, so, so what do you make of this kind of story? Um, is is this kind of story about the the role of the UN and what the effectiveness or efficiency of the UN? Is this a a prominent player in these debates, or has it changed in terms of the way they deploy this kind of story over time? Or,
1: Yeah, it's it's a great question, especially for somebody like me who uh, is a, a scholar of human rights. I mean, so there, there's a couple issues here. One is the, the question about um, efficiency versus legitimacy, um, mm-hmm. and then the other is effectiveness and how do we measure success. Um, and so I'll, I'll try to talk quickly about both of those. Um, In terms of effectiveness, we know um, that the greatest single indicator of future human rights violations is conflict. Uh, And humanitarian intervention, the use of military force, is a form of conflict. Mm -hmm. So it's not a particularly good way to protect and promote human rights. I mean, there's there's an inherent tension there. Um, and so, so, so why do we talk about humanitarian intervention at all as bearing any relationship to human rights? Um, one, I think it comes down to this question of how do we measure success? I mean, and frankly, at the point where states are debating whether or not to engage in humanitarian intervention, um, things are really bad, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it, it's already a failure. The fact that one uses humanitarian intervention or gets to the point of that decision, failure has already Occurred, Um, so in terms of success, I would say you know there's a way to talk about Libya. So is Libya a success or a failure? Mm -hmm. Um, Well, if we look at the Libyan intervention, uh, as it was successful in averting widespread massacre of the civilians of Benghazi, that didn't happen. That was Mm -hmm. expected to happen. Um, Wide scale mass atrocity that was reasonably ascertained about to occur was. Prevent it, And so if we look at it on that measure, it was successful. But it wasn't successful in bringing democracy, stability, or justice to Libya. Um, but that's not necessarily what a humanitarian intervention itself is intended to do. A humanitarian intervention is simply the use of military force by a group of states against a, a sovereign state without its permission. Um, to prevent atrocities, or or to stop or punish atrocities that have been occurring, um, we might want to challenge that. But mm-hmm. but so issue. But there's a there's a how do we measure success? Success in what terms? So humanitarian intervention, blunt instrument, not a great way to promote human rights. But there are moments like when we look back at Rwanda, where it seems that there is no other option but to prevent people who are using violence from continuing to use that, that violence. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of the question about efficiency, no, I mean, you, the UN is not efficient. Um, but the UN has legitimacy, and so I suggest that there's a trade-off between efficiency and legitimacy. It's much more mm-hmm. efficient for a single state, a powerful state, to go in and, and intervene. In in some cases, not always. We know, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a real trade-off there. What the UN brings is legitimacy; that it's not about the self-interested actions of a single actor or a small interested party. And so there's going to be natural inefficiencies that occur when you are bringing troops together in this kind of manner. I think other thing is that people often don't know or realize is that the UN does not have any standing troops, but not only that, they don't have a budget for it. So every Mm -hmm. time the Security Council makes a decision to send military police observers or a peacekeeping mission or even a peace enforcement mission, they then have to go around with their hat and say, hey, do you have any soldiers you can give me? Do you have any equipment mm-hmm. you can give me? And, and even in Rwanda and other cases where eventually a large number of troops might be approved, the inability to actually get states to give those troops to the mission results in fewer troops being put on the ground, which makes the, the mission itself untenable. Mm -hmm. The good news is that things have actually gotten better, um, and we tend to hear a lot more about failure than we do about success, and there have been changes in terms of how the UN does employ military force. So, for example, at the time of Rwanda and Somalia and Bosnia, peacekeepers could only use their weapons in self-defense if they were authorized to do so, and they certainly weren't permitted to use them to protect civilians around them unless they were explicitly permitted to, and that's changed. And so now uh, it's just standard procedure in missions that the UN goes on that it has the authorization to not only peacekeepers protect themselves, but protect the civilians in their vicinity, in their area around them. And so there's been a lot of le- lessons learned and um, the UN has gotten better. Um, I do think that it is in some ways more than the sum of its parts, but we have to remember that it is in many ways the sum of its parts uh, And <laughs> countries, states have an interest in criticizing the UN as a way of deflecting their own yeah. failures because mm-hmm. the success of any mission is the result of the political will of UN members and their willingness to to spend blood and treasure to rescue others.
0: Yeah, we didn't get a chance, um, but of course there are I don't know if third parties is the right way way to put it, but there's intervention in Kosovo and Rwanda in a way, just not by the UN, and and I and, and of course now there is in Syria,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and. I go back to that question about this, this, how typical this kind of evolution of norms is and and wonder how critical something like Syria is in terms of laying the groundwork for a continued expansion in the role of the UN in protecting human rights and or 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 not, right? If if, if the UN's action or non action in Syria is perceived as a failure, how much will that be a reversal to this evolution.
1: Yeah, I mean, one of the fascinating things about the Security Council debates themselves is that the Security Council is really under assault based on its failure to be effective in, in any way in mean, Syria. Well, I mean, we, we can't dismiss the fact that the, the chemical weapons uh, treaty was signed and Syria disbanded chemical weapons and any weapons that they are now using are pretty rudimentary stuff that they're mixing and making on the on the spot, though it's they're still using them and it's a problem. Um, but during Security Council meetings, the Security Council members are continually under assault by other members of the United Nations, as well as permanent members under assault by elected members about mm. their failure. And you just have warning after warning coming from member states saying that this is shaping and harming the legitimacy of the institution and its effectiveness going forward. And so it's a real threat to the the future and the effectiveness of the Security Council. But I think that there's also a glimmer of hope there because it is such a regular theme. It comes up in nearly every meeting on Syria. It shows that there has been significant enough normative change and acceptance that it's not appropriate for states to murder their populations um, and for, for states to permit non-state actors to, to do this within the territory of states either. And there's a, there's a real sense of outrage, and it shows that there are high expectations about what the Security Council is meant to do, and it's no longer meant just to suppress interstate war that it's, it's expected to halt mass atrocities. It's expected to mediate civil wars. And so while it's uh, it potentially damages the institution and it shows its weakness, it also shows the way in which the mission of the institution itself has grown and the legitimacy of the institution has grown because the expectations have increased and they're falling far short of meeting those expectations. So it, it kind of cuts Both ways, and I would say um, non-state actors have often been a part of conflicts, particularly rebel groups and organizations, but there are other non-state actors that really play a role in in conflict, and those include NGOs um, Mm -hmm. and um, humanitarian aid agencies and They play an important role on the ground. They also play an important role as providing independent expertise, um, reporting and monitoring about what's going on in the ground, and mobilizing shame uh, and public outrage. And so they are real players in all of these conflicts, that it's no longer a world of just states, and it's no longer a world of just states and formal uh, state membership organizations like the U.N., that there are all kinds of non-state actors that have influence in international politics. Yeah, and that strikes me as really, I
0: don't know if problematic is the right word, but challenging, because, of course, we have a set of institutions that's designed to uh, create a, a an environment and a location where states can talk to each other and negotiate. We don't have that kind of equivalent um, institutional arrangement for non state actors, mm-hmm. and, and yet here we have this world in which um, the, the, the um, power of social media means that individuals or a variety of different uh, NGOs or non-state actors can in fact play a really significant role.
1: Yeah, that's true, and I mean sometimes individuals just appeal directly. They they bypass yeah. gatekeepers of organizations mm-hmm. and, and appeal to the masses through through YouTube videos and the like. Um, I do think it's, it's reasonable to expect that maybe there will be some institutional arrangements for mm-hmm. uh, NGOs, for example, um, and and a couple of, and a good example would be around the International Criminal Court. So. There is an NGO coalition, the coalition for the International Criminal Court. Mm. Um, they they maintain their individual statuses, um, but they have a convener and a secretariat that convenes them, um, that also uh, provides... You know, services for them, and disseminates information, and organizes meetings, and, and the like. And so, um, there's also a coalition of NGOs in support of the responsibility to protect. And so, mm-hmm. you're you're starting to see this kind of develop on an issue basis,
0: mm-hmm. where
1: um, non-state actors who care about a particular issue or a particular conflict can organize themselves with an institutional structure. And so, we may see more of that evolving over time. Well, you've been really
0: generous with your time, um, and, and I appreciate it, and I want to encourage listeners. Uh, it's a wonderful book, and it's, as, as Carrie has said, it's it's very carefully um, considered and researched uh, and and looks, while she paints broad stories about the evolution of, of human rights norms, each, each particular chapter is very careful to consider each of the, uh, what makes each chapter distinct. Um, so I encourage you all to go read it. Uh, and, and so I often end the interviews with with a couple basic questions. And, and the first is to ask guests, Carrie in this case, um, to suggest one or two books that they were reading while they did this research, or maybe reading now, or, or movies or documentaries, whatever it might be, um, something that was meaningful to you in the course of your research. Um, and, and the other way I usually frame this is in this magical, mystical world in which all of the blue books on my desk suddenly disappear, <laughs> um, what should I read this weekend?
1: Yeah, well, I have I have two suggestions. One is to to go back and and find that old copy of Deborah Stone's Policy Paradox, or buy uh-huh. a new one because it's in its uh, third edition and available on Amazon. And I I think that um, it's really compelling to see how. Uh, arguments about American public policy context can can have so much uh, influence on explaining the policy process in a lot of different venues and a lot of different places around the world. So so I recommend that. And, and then in terms of a documentary film, I recommend that people watch the E-Team. And that is available on Netflix right now. And the E-Team, E-Team stands for Emergencies Team. And it documents how human rights workers, in this case from Human Rights Watch, do their actual work in the field. So, how do they use forensic evidence? How do they work with testimony? How do they get information on the ground in these war zones so that they can produce this independent expertise? And, and so, I think it's a really compelling look, uh, and it's very timely because they they do their work both in Libya and Syria in this particular documentary. So. I recommend Policy Paradox to read, hmm. and then the E-Team, if you're up for watching something.
0: Well, I have to say, you, as you say, up for watching something. Um, my wife is continually annoyed at the end of these interviews because I keep, keep, keep <laughs> picking up ideas for movies that I should watch or something that I make her watch. And, and then she walks out of the room, and she looks at me and says, how can you possibly watch all of this about death and destruction? And I say, well, I don't know, but you watch SNAP <laughs> all the time, and I can't. But in any case, um, so the last question then is, um, what are you working on now?
1: Yeah, so I have an exciting new project um, just getting started on an edited volume on the relationship between the UN Security Council and the International Criminal Court. And the whole point of the project is to put into conversation the research of academics, with the on-the-ground, in-the-field experiences of practitioners who are working at the Security Council or at the court. Um, so really excited about that. And it, it follows this pattern that I have of trying to work at the intersection of scholarship and, and practice. And so I'll also mention it might be interesting to, to listeners who want to learn a little bit more about the history of human rights policy or teachers who, who do some teaching in the human rights field is that um, with a colleague of mine, we've created an online website. It's kind of like a free online textbook on human rights advocacy and the history of international human rights standards, and that is really easily found at www.humanrightshistory.umich.edu. That UMICH stands for the University of Michigan, which which hosts this project for us. Um, and so that's a, another place where you can see the intersection of uh, very, very short, user-friendly descriptions of developments in the field of human rights and stories from practitioners.
0: Well, I have to confess, you had me until you said U-Mish. Yeah. As a Michigan State and Ohio State graduate, I'm not sure I can actually publicly recommend such an institution. However,
1: <laughs> well, come on. But come on. I will I will
0: throw that <laughs> URL up on um, on the webpage uh, as the interview is posted. And so if you're interested in that, you can go to the website. um, And if you're not familiar with that, just Google New Books in Genocide Studies. It will come up, and you can see a a link to that, um, along with a link to um, more information about Carrie and about Carrie's book. Um, So that um, brings us to the end. Carrie, thank you so much. This has been wonderful. I really appreciate your time. And I hope when you're done with your next project, you'll come back on the show again and talk about it with us.
1: Thank you so much. I appreciate it.